0: Well good evening and welcome back to the last session in our Wednesday night study of the signs of salvation. We are in Acts chapter 2. This is where uh, Peter takes an opportunity to preach uh, a sermon to those who are gathered in Jerusalem for um, Pentecost, which is the festival of weeks. It's the big harvest festival and the Holy Spirit was outpoured and it was quite a commotion A crowd gathered, Peter took the opportunity to preach, and what we're looking at is the response to Peter's sermon. And and particularly, not just the immediate response, but from about verse 40 down through the end of the chapter, it kind of gives us a summary of what's happening in the church uh, in the immediate time period after this sermon, what happens with all these new believers. And so uh, that's what we're looking at. And so we've tonight is our last night in this study. We'll be looking at a seventh sign uh, of salvation. But the the idea is the people who responded to his sermon, uh, we're looking at things that we can see in their life that we recognize Uh, These are commonalities to those who hear the gospel and come to saving faith uh, tend to follow this pattern. And so uh, in verse 37 we saw that those who heard the preaching uh, were cut to the heart. Uh, They felt a conviction for their sin and Peter exhorted them to repent of their sin. Uh, Then we saw in verse 41 that uh, there was uh, an impetuous among these uh, new converts to follow Christ in obedience... Uh, by being baptized. And then we saw in verse 42 that they evidenced a newfound love for the scriptures, for the word of God, of the teaching, the doctrine that the apostles were teaching to the church. In verse 42 we also saw that they had a newfound love for the people of God, not just for the word of God, but for the people of God, for the fellowship of the saints. And then we saw in verse forty two that they also had a newfound love for prayer, and again, these were likely most of them uh, Jews or at least proselytes to the Jewish religion who were there celebrating the festival. These were religious people who were probably already in the habit of praying but This newfound life in Christ led them uh, to continue steadfastly in prayer with God's people. And then we saw last week uh, a newfound joy in the Lord, this gladness with which they received the word uh, in verse 41, uh, a gladness with which they received their food in verse 46, uh, and the idea that they were praising God in verse 47. So tonight, uh, the last sign that we'll look at, the seventh sign, is uh, the idea of a new heart. And we'll look at verse 46. Let's just read the whole thing from verse 37 down through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about three thousand souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So the phrase that we're going to look at is there at the end of verse 46 uh, when it says that they had this simplicity of heart. Uh, and so this is a sign uh, that someone has come to faith in Christ is the idea that they have a new heart. Uh, and this is really at the root of all the other signs. Uh, this is one that is somewhat difficult for us to observe because we can't see the heart. Right? Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. So we, we can't infallibly know that someone has been regenerated, uh, given new life by the Spirit, and that they have this newness of heart. But we can see uh, outward manifestations of this inward change. And and to a large extent, this new heart manifests itself in the first six signs that we looked at. But there are some specifics to this. And, and so some of the things I wanted to cover is, first of all, when we say... Uh, singleness of heart or simplicity of heart or newness of heart or anything like this, Uh, what do we mean by heart? What does the scripture mean when it talks about them having simplicity of heart? Now, we use this quite often, right? We can talk about somebody being cold-hearted or somebody being soft-hearted or warm-hearted. And we mean something by that. So what do we mean by it? Well, uh, we mean, if someone is cold-hearted, it means that they have no sympathy for others, no compassion. If they're warm-hearted or soft-hearted, it means that they do have sympathy or compassion for others. Well, what does it mean, though, to have sympathy for someone? Well, according to Webster's, sympathy is the inclination to think or feel alike. Right, it's the inclination to think or feel what someone else is thinking or feeling. It's the act or capacity of entering into or sharing the feelings and interests of another. Right? so that's what sympathy means. So, if we say that somebody has a soft or a warm heart, and we mean that that's what they're doing, that they can they can see someone else that's hurting or grieving, or joyful, or whatever it is, and they can enter into that, they can think those thoughts and feel those things along with that person, now, then what do we mean when we say that someone has a new heart when they get saved? Well, I would argue that what we mean is that they are now able, before they had a cold heart towards God, they were not able to think and, and feel uh, in accord with what God thinks, and what God uh, feels towards things. Now, God doesn't experience emotions in the way we do. His are perfections, right? We fluctuate. His are steady and unchanging. His love never changes. His hatred of evil never changes. But when we have a new heart, we begin to think God's thoughts after him. We begin to hate the things God hates, to love the things that God loves. Now. There are two things, obviously, involved in this. One is our mind, we're thinking thoughts, and the other is our emotions or our feelings. Is this what scripture means by this? Well, I think it does, but I think it also means a little bit more as well. So we're going to look at some passages to try and determine what scripture means when it talks about our heart. So I'm going to turn over to Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at a few different verses uh, throughout the New Testament here. But Luke chapter 9, verses 46 uh, through 47. Now, here Jesus is with his disciples, with the 12 apostles. uh, And it says in verse 46, Then a dispute arose among them. So this is the 12 apostles, the disciples at this point. A, A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Now, isn't that just like us, right? Who of us is going to be the greatest of Jesus' disciples? And in verse 47, And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said, So what it says here is that Jesus knew, he perceived what they were thinking in their heart. So here scripture is talking about the heart and it's talking about their thoughts, what they were thinking. But it's really more than that, right? We can understand what they were thinking about was who is going to be the greatest. So it was thinking, but it was also desire, right? Desire for fame, for glory, that sort of thing. Let's flip back over to Acts. Acts chapter 8. Now in Acts chapter 8, the gospel is beginning to spread uh, around the known world. And the gospel has gone uh, to a new area and there is a man here named Simon Uh, who is practicing uh, magic. He's a magician, right? Not like the kind that entertains at a child's party, uh, but this guy is uh, practicing the mystic arts, so to speak, and impressing people with his power, right? Uh, And so as the gospel comes to Samaria, here this magician, Simon the Magician, is, uh, and he hears the preaching, and he sees all the people who are now following uh, the apostles, And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 18, it says this, and it says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, so he offers money to the apostles, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So, he has a thought in his heart. The thought is the gift of God, that is the Holy Spirit could be purchased with money. That's his thought, right? But he also has some desires in his heart. We can see this. He has a lust for power, for fame. He wants this power to impart the Holy Spirit to people because he wants to be recognized as the big man on campus. So it's, his heart is not right before God because of his pride and his desire for fame and fortune and power. Now if we flip over to Romans chapter 1, And we'll actually look at this passage in more detail Sunday morning. Um, But in Romans chapter 1, Paul is explaining uh, the problem with the unrighteous, unrepentant men of this world. And he says in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So there's lust or evil desire in their hearts now, leads to their actions that dishonor their bodies. But so here we have so far thoughts, evil desires in the heart. Um, but then we also see what we would think of typically as emotions, spoken of as coming in the heart. In John chapter sixteen, John chapter sixteen, Jesus is telling his disciples um, that. Uh, he, he is going to go uh, away from them. And, and it says that in verse 6, he says to them, "...but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart." So here's just an emotion, right? This isn't a th- I mean, They are thinking about Christ leaving, and, but it makes them sorrowful. They're feeling this emotion of sorrow in their hearts. So we can see that scripture as it speaks about the heart is including thoughts. It's including emotions which we got before from our general definition of sympathy and somebody that was warm-hearted or cold-hearted, but scriptures also including the desires or the affections of the inner person. Now, if we go back to Acts 2, our text in Acts 2, and we look back at the beginning, this all started because when Peter preached in verse 37, when they, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So they were cut deep deep. Right? If, we, if somebody, if you get a flesh wound, it's just a flesh wound. If you're cut to the heart, it's a deep wound. So that's being said. But it's also saying they came under conviction of sin. Right? They had a mental knowledge of their sins, so there's a thought process going on. But they also had an emotional weight of guilt. They, they were cut to the heart, convicted of their sin. So um, Scripture, in talking about the heart, is really talking about the inner person. Right? Our thoughts our emotions, but also our will and our desires. Uh, It's the center of our feelings and affections, the seat of our morality, right? Scripture talks about the law of God being written on our hearts. We know right from wrong because it's, this, uh, the heart is the center of the inner man, is the seat of morality. Uh, one commentary that I read put it this way. It said that the heart is the, the laboratory and origin of our deepest desires, thoughts, words, and actions. So that's, that's what we're speaking of when we speak of the heart. And, and we can see also that in Acts chapter 8 verse 37, uh, Philip here was preaching, right, to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch wants to be baptized. But before he baptizes, even Peter, Philip asks him a question. He, he says, the, the man says, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Right? So belief happens in the heart as well. So it includes our mind, but it's more than just our mind. So belief is not merely a mental assent, that Christ is God or the savior, but it's actually a trusting ourselves to him, right? It's a loving him in a new way. So it's with all the heart, not just the mind, but also with the emotions and with the will and the affections. So when we talk about somebody um, getting a new heart, as we're saying this is our sign of salvation that the person has a new heart, we have to ask why, what's wrong with the old one? Uh, What's the state or the condition of the heart in an unbeliever before they come to faith? Well, this is what we typically call the doctrine of total depravity. If we flip over to Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, uh, we see that God is bringing judgment on the earth because of mankind's sin, because of the violence that is being done on the earth. And this is God's commentary or his observation on the situation in Genesis 6 verse 5 says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there's the condition of the heart of an unsaved person. The thoughts and intents of his heart are wicked or evil continually. So God sends a flood uh, to wipe them out He saves Noah and his family. Does this fix the situation? Well, no, it doesn't. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, uh, after Noah has come off the ark, uh, he is offering burnt offerings on an altar. And it says in verse 21, And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. He's smelling the aroma of the, the offering that Noah is making. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So even though the flood happened, nothing changed in the hearts of unregenerate men. The the thoughts and intentions uh, of our hearts are evil continually from our youth. Uh, Man's heart is wicked. Our confession of faith addresses this topic in chapter 6. And and this is what it says in paragraph 2 of chapter 6. It says that we are wholly or completely defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Right. So this is the doctrine of total depravity. It's not the doctrine of utter depravity. It's not saying that we couldn't be worse than we are. It's simply saying that there is no part of us that has not been defiled by sin, right? We can't say that, well, there's this part of my heart or this part of my mind that's pure. No, uh, we we are wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the soul and body. And then in paragraph four of that same chapter, it says this, it says, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. So that is the state of The unregenerate man's heart. He is indisposed, disabled, and opposed to all that is good. He's opposed to it. He's an enemy of good. He is not able to do good. He doesn't want to do good. And he is inclined to evil. Uh, So this is what uh, the unregenerate man's heart is like. If we flip over now to the New Testament and look at a few passages... Well, actually, we're going to flip back and forth. But in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, this is one of the proof texts they give there in the confession. It says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Nothing is pure. Nothing is undefiled for the unsaved person. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. And Jeremiah Chapter 17, and this is a passage you may be familiar with. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Funny story, I remember as a teenager being at a conference with a group of men from our church. And I don't remember where the conference was, somewhere in Missouri. And the speaker was speaking about marriage and and family, and he was talking about the man being the head of the home, and he used this analogy, if the man is the head of the home, the woman is the heart of the household. And somebody in the back of the room just yelled this verse out really loud, which got a laugh, Um, but that's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about is that our inner person is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. What does it mean to be desperately wicked? It means incurably diseased. Right? It's a situation we can't remedy for ourselves. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, Paul writes and says that the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So the carnal mind, somebody who is still in the flesh, does not have a new heart given to them by the Holy Spirit. um, They are enmity against God. That is deeply rooted hatred. They are opposed to all that is good. Now, what is the results of this? What does this mean for mankind? Well, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is teaching uh, and he says in verse 20, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now that's not a flattering list. This is what comes out of our sinful hearts naturally. right? So because our hearts are desperately wicked, because they are utterly opposed to all that is good, What comes out of our hearts then are evil thoughts and evil actions and evil words. Even the good things that we do as unregenerate people are evil because they have their roots in evil hearts. And that's why Paul can write in Romans 14, 23 and say that whatever is not from faith is sin. Because even our good deeds, if they're not done in faith, are like filthy rags. They're not, they're not done trusting in God and seeking his glory, but rather they're proceeding out of our evil hearts and seeking our own glory. So in Mark chapter 6, we have a, a very interesting verse. Mark chapter 6, ver, verse 52. Uh, Jesus has been teaching and The disciples are with him in the boat and they're asking him, they're thinking among themselves about what has just happened. He's walked on the water. He's fed the multitude with the loaves. It says in verse 52 that they were amazed in themselves, in verse 51, beyond measure and marveled. And then in verse 52, for, because they had not understood about the loaves. So they didn't understand what Christ had done with the loaves feeding the 5,000. Is it because they were incapable, incapable of understanding? It was, it was above their heads? They couldn't comprehend it? No. It says because their heart was hardened. People's rejection of the gospel, rejection of Christ, is not because they don't understand it mentally. It's because they're, they have hard hearts. They, they willfully reject Christ. They don't want... To accept Christ. It's not that they're mentally incapable. It's simply that they are unwilling. And so in Acts chapter 7 verse 51. uh, Again we see. uh, I think this is Stephen preaching in this case. and, And he tells the gathered crowd that is listening to him. He says you stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. He calls them uncircumcised in heart. Well, what that means is that their hearts have not had the sin cut off of them. This is what Paul tells us to do continually in his letters, is to, to put off the old man, to put off the sin nature, to put it to death. If you don't do that, you have an uncircumcised heart. You have a heart that still has the sin attached to it like a cancer. It hasn't been cut out. And this uncircumcised heart leads them to resist the Holy Spirit. So if this is the case with an unsaved person, what hope is there then for sinners? Well, we'll start in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God is speaking about uh, the coming of the new covenant and the renewal that will happen there and he says this in verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. Well, first we'll read verse 25. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So God is promising in the future with the coming restoration and the coming of the new covenant and the king, the Messiah that has been promised that that the people will be cleansed of their sins. In verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. What we're talking about here is spiritual heart surgery, a spiritual heart replacement. Right? God changes our inner man. He gives us willing minds. He gives us new affections and desires resulting in new words and actions. That old, cold-hearted uh, unwillingness Uh, to acknowledge God, unwillingness to uh, this opposition that we have to the truth uh, has been removed. It's been circumcised. Our hearts have been circumcised at that point. We're given a new desire to obey God, a new sensitivity to God's will and God's uh, teachings. And so we have this new heart. We see this happening uh, throughout the New Testament uh, in the book of Acts. If we were to flip over to chapter 16, uh, the gospel is is going to the nations. And so Timothy and Paul uh, are preaching the gospel in various cities, right? And they come to Philippi. And it says that in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. So there's Jews gathered at the riverside praying. Uh, And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Now listen to what he says. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So the Lord opened her heart so that she could not just hear the words he was speaking, but actually heed them, that she could pay attention to them, take them to heart and be changed by them. So this is the hope that there is for sinners, is that the Lord opens our heart, that he gives us a new heart that is not opposed to him, but is instead, not, it's not a stone, cold heart, but rather as a heart of flesh that is open and warm towards the things of God. So our question is, if we're looking at this as a sign of salvation, is what does that look like in the new believer? Well, it looks like a great change in the inner person, which we can't readily see, but that inner person we've seen that heart results in a change in the thoughts, a change in the feelings and desires, that leads to a change in behavior, and attitude, a change of language and, and speech, a change of actions. Right? It's specifically, it's a change of our desires and our attitudes and our behavior toward the things of God. Right? It leads us to have this newfound love for the Word, this newfound love for the people of God, this newfound love of prayer. All those things flow from this new heart. Uh, Peter Masters from the Metropolitan Tabernacle says that truly converted people are ready to change their lifestyle to please God. Those who have come to faith in Christ, they want to please Christ. They, They recognize what he has done for them and they're eager to change uh, in order to please God. In verse in, in Acts 2.46 here, our verse for tonight, uh, when it says that they received their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, it, it means they received it without uh, hypocrisy. It means their hearts, they weren't double-minded, right? They weren't outwardly professing Christ but inwardly harboring other desires. No, they really meant it when they were thankful for the food that they had received. And, and Verses 44 and 45, we see that they were willing to sacrificially give uh, of what they had for the sake of others. And in verse 43, we we read this interesting uh, comment. It says, Then fear came upon every soul. Fear? Why why would fear come upon every soul? Well, this is talking about the fear of the Lord. It's a carefulness to obey Him. It's a consciousness and awareness of his holiness, of his power, of his greatness. And when they gather with other believers to worship, it's it's coming before God with this awareness of who he is that causes us to be serious and reverent in our worship, joyful at the same time, but not irreverent, not flippant uh, towards God and towards his worship. We look at so many churches today that are very entertainment focused. Uh, Some of the clips that you can find online are unbelievably outlandish. Uh, Acting out movie scenes or performing secular music, pastors act like entertainers uh, and rather than ambassadors for Christ. If there's a real fear of God that comes with having a new heart, it should change the way we approach God Uh, that we should approach him with reverence and awe and a seriousness concerning his worship. In Luke chapter 12, verse 34, Christ tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, So a new heart means a new location for the things we treasure, right? It means a change of affections in our hearts. We no longer treasure worldly possessions, ambitions, the praise of men, etc. Instead, the things we now treasure are the inheritance that has been promised to us in Christ, and so that is kept secure for us in heaven. Um, We treasure God, his word, his commands, his people, his glory, his worship. Uh, A new heart, therefore, means that we should recognize a sense of humility uh, and teachableness in the new believer, who should recognize that, hey, I've got a lot to learn here. I want to know more about Christ. I want to know more about God and and how I can better worship Him and obey Him. If we find someone who's claiming that they've come to Christ and yet they're unteachable, they don't want to learn about Christ, they're they're proud, uh, their affections are still set on the things of this world, that should give us pause, that we, we should question whether or not their confession is genuine or not. Peter Masters again says that at least in the beginning of the Christian life, the warm, open, responsive, obedient heart is very evident and must be rated as a prime mark of grace. Now, again, over time, we can quench the spirit. We can sear our conscience. We, our, our affections cool off if we're not stoking the fire of our affections by seeking the Lord regularly uh, through the ordinary means of grace. But at the very beginning, when someone first comes to faith, that that joy that we talked about last week should be evident. This This warm, responsive, obedient heart towards God should be fairly evident. Now we could go through the rest of the scriptures are passages in First John that talk about things that we could see as signs of faith in someone. But these seven that we have looked at here in Acts chapter 2 are a good starting place. A conviction of sin and a repentance towards God, obedience towards God, a love for God's word, a love for God's people, a love for prayer, joy in the Lord, and a new heart at the root of all of that. Now, what we need to recognize is that these signs of salvation don't always appear exactly the same way in every person, and so we shouldn't expect them to. Um, Some conversion is different for everyone. Sometimes it's sudden and dramatic, especially we love to hear these dramatic testimonies of somebody who got saved in prison or was involved in gangs or drugs or whatever, and those are wonderful testimonies to hear, but sometimes... Uh, somebody's conversion could be a, a long, slow, gentle process as they were raised in a Christian home and taught the gospel and, and it might not be this dramatic thing. Uh, but we should still see these signs, maybe all at once in a dramatic way. Maybe we see a growth in these things over a period of time as someone finds a newfound interest and love in the word and desire to be with God's people. But these are signs that we should be looking for. If we're going to keep the Great Commission, which is to go to all the nations, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all that Christ has commanded us, we need to recognize what these signs of conversion are. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 warns us that we need to be careful lest any man fall short of the grace of God, which is to say, fall short of true salvation. And it means we have to look carefully towards these signs, not just in new believers, but in our own hearts as well. Churches uh, admitting members without due care to make sure that they are actually converted is probably one of the largest problems with the church in America today. Churches are weighed down with unsaved members uh, and, and become unhealthy, uh, spiritually weak, and even apostatize. A number of years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, did a study and admitted that they thought that 50% or more of their members were unregenerate. That's astonishing. And that's from one of the more sound denominations that exist in the country. So uh, this is a really important thing that we need to be aware of both in our own lives and as a church as we're seeking to take the gospel to others. We need to be aware of what it looks like when someone actually comes to faith in Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer.